Hey everyone, I'm sitting here today with our very own Dr. Fortner, who is a physics professor at NC State. Hello, thank you for coming in. Sure, yeah, this should be fun. All right, I just wanted to talk to you about your fascinating history. You followed a very non-traditional path, and yet you worked for NASA, you worked for Johns Hopkins, and you started not one, but two software companies. And we would love to hear about that and what the most meaningful experience was, the one you gathered the most of, just maybe any tips for us college kids. <laughs> tips for college kids, I love that. Yeah, so I followed a non-traditional career probably because I had ADHD. People that are able to focus on single subjects and do really well on single subjects are perfect for an academic career. And those people are the ones that get PhDs, those are the people that are the ones that become professors. I tend to be interested in a lot of different things. So while I was an undergraduate, I got sucked into computers. And this is back in the early 1970s, back when computers were something special. And I, in fact, I wrote the world's first uh, interactive flight simulator, which was later taken over by Microsoft. That's, a, that's another long story. And later in my graduate career, I got distracted by a new supercomputer center that was going in at uh, the University of Illinois. Wound up working with computers there, and I found the academic life finishing graduate school was kind of an irritation. Yet you ended up in academia. Yeah, but it took me about 15 years to get oh. back. <laughs> so after I left the university, still not finishing my PhD, I started my first company, which was called Spyglass. And this is pre-internet. This is before the internet existed. This was 1990. And I started the company initially to commercialize the software that my team had developed uh, doing scientific visualization, making images out of uh, scientific data. Much later on, we were given the opportunity to be the commercial licensor of the technology developed at Illinois called Mosaic, which was the world's first internet browser. And that took us in a completely different direction and lots of stuff happened, which there are several books about. One of the more interesting things was there was a company formed from our technology that they had acquired by acquiring the personnel at Illinois that developed Mosaic, and they called their company Mosaic Communications. The University of Illinois and my company sued them, and we won, and that company changed their name to Netscape. Uh, Which is a household name at this point. Right. And we didn't become the household name, although in 1994-95, it wasn't clear who was going to win the browser awards because we were the licensor of Internet Explorer, for example. Internet Explorer 1.0 and 2.0 were our products. And there were 28 browsers on the market in 1995. 27 of them were ours. The 28th, of course, was Netscape. But then lots of things happened. That was certainly the most non-academic experience I have. And I love talking about the experience because... One of the things that people think when they think about being an entrepreneur is, gee, if I read up everything, if I get a master's in business administration, if I hire the best people, I'm going to succeed. People don't understand how incredibly random sometimes what happens is. The fact that we became the licensor of Mosaic was just almost random. It was personal connections. The fact that my second company failed, it failed for a lot of random reasons. And so really for me, when I try and talk to people becoming entrepreneurs, it's being able to manage that randomness, to be able to manage the unexpected. And that's what makes successful entrepreneurs. Excellent. What was the biggest thing that you took away from this experience? Honestly? Honestly. 
if you need a friend, get a dog. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry that that sounds horrible, but I had people that I trusted do horrible things. So I had a CEO, good friend of mine who embezzled from me. I had developers who were good friends who basically lied. And so it's, there's a real difference between academia and business that, that I was unaware of. I think one of the biggest differences is that in academia, reputation is very important. And so people will always try to protect their reputation or try and attack other people and their research, which is actually good. It sounds bad, but it's good because that way we all kind of go through that fire. A business is very different. Business is just as cutthroat. Actually, it's more cutthroat, but it's a lot more polite. And so people in business tend to be very nice. I mean, we would socialize with our uh, competitors. We would socialize with people that would stab us in the back when it came around to it. And it was just, it's a different tenor. It was hard to get used to. A short story. I was having a beer with my physics advisor once, and he said that one of the reasons that great people are great and the rest of us aren't is how you deal with failure. That, and he, he said it in a very interesting way. He says that most of us live in a fog of regret. We're surrounded by that fog. And it's very difficult to pierce that fog of regret. Really great people can pierce that fog and make decisions based on what is on the ground right now. Now, he was telling me this in the late 90s when Bill Clinton was president of the United States, and he had an issue with Monica Lewinsky. And he was using that as an illustration of a great person because Bill Clinton did something that most of us would absolutely cringe by. Most of us would crawl under a rock and hope the world never saw us again. Now Bill Clinton is one of the most respected people out there. And he was able to not have that fog of regret destroy him. He was able to make decisions based on what was true and real. And if I had had that mindset with my second company, I would have had a much different history. Because I always had that fog of regret around me trying to save what was basically unsavable. And you said that your first company was a raging success. Yes. It, it became Internet Explorer. Did you sell it to someone or what happened with that? So to answer that question kind of a long way around, we were uh, funded by a couple of venture firms that uh, people that know are, are aware of them, Venrock and Greylock. Uh, Venrock is the Rockefeller fam, uh, family and Greylock is a very well-known Boston venture campus firm. And I remember having a meeting with the Greylock firm, and they were talking about another investment they made, a company called Avid, which makes video stuff, and they're still around. And they says, yeah, it's a great company. It was a great investment for us. Six months after we invested in them, all five founders were gone. <laughs> so um, there, were, there were three of us that founded Byglass. By 1995, all three of us were gone in various ways. So as part of my leaving the company, I was given the ability to reacquire the original technology I developed, which I did. And I started my second company and that was the basis of that. So at the time I didn't feel that upset about leaving, you know? So instead of being one of three founders for my first company, I owned a hundred percent of my second company, which had its benefits and its downsides. I would like to discuss your research at Johns Hopkins because that is also a significant part of your career and your life path. Yes, yeah, so Johns Hopkins University is, is a, a famous place, and there's 
there's one part that's very famous and one part that very few people know about. So the main campus, Johns Hopkins, is, of course, downtown Baltimore, uh, Maryland. And it's one of the best universities in the world. They have a medical center that actually employs several times more people than the main campus. And that is probably the best medical facility in the world, arguably. There's another wing of Johns Hopkins called Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, which also employs several times more people than the main campus does. But Hopkins tends to keep the existence of that arm of the university very quiet. And the reason they do is that Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab does work for a lot of clients. One of our bigger clients was NASA, but we also did a lot of work for other clients, such as the Navy, the Air Force, and other clients who prefer not to be named, mostly government. Wow. So it was my first experience with large government research facilities. And it was actually quite a pleasure because we were a research organization, but we were an extremely large research organization, which meant we had a lot of resources. We had lots of computers. We had wind tunnels. We had any subject you can imagine there was an expert on. So, you know, some of the unclassified research we did was um, training sessions for people uh, running missile exercises on nuclear submarines. Some of the unclassified work we did was the messenger orbiter around Mercury is a Johns Hopkins um, satellite. New Horizons, which is the satellite going to Pluto, is also a Johns Hopkins. I worked in a part of the division working for government clients who prefer not to be named. One of the uh, jobs I did that was unclassified was what we call video steganography. We were getting a lot of videotapes from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, videotapes that we really would like to have more information about. And my team developed the technology to identify uh, the model and in some kind cases even the particular camera that took uh, the videotape based on details of the video signal. We also did some work for the U.S. Postal Service trying to validate videos used during video surveillance to make sure that the videos were not tampered with. As you know, it's extremely easy to tamper with uh, sound and video. And when you're in court, you have to prove that it has not been tampered with. And we developed a tamper-proof system for making sure that that uh, couldn't happen. Unfortunately, a lot of the work I did work on are stuff that, you know, I just, I can't talk about. Yeah, but thank you so much for sharing. I mean, all the things you mentioned I didn't know Johns Hopkins did that. I thought it was predominantly a medical university. I actually am considering it for graduate school. But yeah, that sounds fantastic. And was this a stepping stone towards your ending up at NC State? Indirectly. I, I should mention that politically I'm, I'm very liberal. The people I was working with at Hopkins are some of the best and most technically competent people I've ever worked with in my life. And unlike working in an academic institution, we worked as a team towards definite goals. And that was really nice and neat for me. However, I was probably the only Democrat with, within the two buildings that I worked in. Although I loved the people I worked with in terms of their skills and in terms of the, most of the people I worked with were either military or ex-military. And there's a real mission orientation working with military and ex-military that makes life very easy. We just get things done, you know, no drama. Uh, but 
I wanted to go to a place where I didn't have to pass people with M16s and show my badge and be scanned in and searched every time I went to work. The reason I'm here was that I had a conversation with Dr. Sherwood and Dr. Chabay, who wrote the textbook I'm currently teaching out of. And my friendship with them goes back 45 years. Dr. Chabay and I were fellow undergraduates. Dr. Sherwood used to be my boss back at Illinois. Uh, he's somewhat older. But, I mean, we know, how, how do I say this? We know where the bodies are buried. We know each other's histories. And another person that I deeply respect is a Dr. Bitzer, who is a distinguished professor in the E department here. He came from the team I worked with at Illinois in the late 1980s. The fact that Dr. Bitzer was here, Dr. Sherwood, Dr. Spade, three people that were very close friends I deeply respected, in conversations with them, they were able to offer me a position in the department here, and it just seemed like a perfect move. Besides the fact that the weather is a lot nicer here. Oh, yes. <laughs> that I would agree with. That's why my family moved here from Russia. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming in. It was really great having you and hearing about all the work you do. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Perhaps no international organization is better known than the United Nations. Headquartered in New York and founded shortly after World War II, the UN is the largest international organization of countries in the world that plays host to ambassadors from all over. This week, the New Zealand ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations is visiting NC State to discuss some of the largest issues facing New Zealand, the United States, and the international community as a whole. The Honorable James McClay served as the Deputy Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition party in the mid-1980s before retiring. In 2009, he was appointed as the New Zealand ambassador to the United Nations. To be perfectly frank, uh, my job is to be a semi-expert on just about everything where I have a whole lot of experts who work under me. But um, uh, for, for instance, in the UN system, the, the core work is done in six major committees, um, dealing with disarmament, with um, development issues, with human rights, with uh, political development, decolonization, budgetary and uh, law, um, legal issues, including law of the sea. And they are all experts. They're people who know what to do and know, know the fine detail and have spent years working in these fields. And my basic task is to be there when something goes wrong. Um, Sitting in a small I, I conference room, the ambassador touched upon the role New Zealand has historically played and continues to play on the world stage, working with and occasionally in opposition to some of the larger players in the international politics, such as the United States, Britain, and France. And that's been the mark of New Zealand at the UN, and indeed at the League of Nations before, uh, in terms of its ind very independent foreign policy. That said, we fought with the United States in every war of the 20th century. We were with you in Afghanistan, um, and indeed, I think we finally, we finally pull out of Afghanistan next year because of the particular province, Bamiyan, that we've been focused on has, is one of the first to transition to full Afghan control. Uh, and we, we work with the United States on a whole range of issues. But at the same time, we, we often have a, have a very independent line. For instance, we were the only one of the five traditional sort of old empire countries, uh, Britain, Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand were the only one to vote for the recent resolution to recognize Palestine as a non-member observer state at the UN. 
And that just, uh, I think, indicates the, the somewhat independent line that we tend to take from time to time. Like Australia, New Zealand has often had a somewhat troubled relationship with its Indigenous people. The Ambassador outlined New Zealand's role in righting wrongs committed against its Indigenous people in the past and its role in the larger global human rights campaign today. Well, domestically, um, probably the big human rights issues we have are those that relate to Indigenous people and the need to remedy some past wrongs that were done, particularly in the, in the 19th century. Uh, internationally, they're very much the issues that um, confront, uh, confront us all. Um, we, we, we do take a strong line on human rights issues. That said, and I, this links us back to the domestic situation, uh, we, we've got things to grapple with ourselves and we're slowly, we think, getting them right. We have a rather unique approach to um, remedying past wrongs, which doesn't actually fit very easily with the global approach, but suits, suits uh, everyone in New Zealand, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and works, I guess you would say it works for us. But they're very much the issues that, that concern others. We're, we're concerned, obviously, about the current situation in Syria, just to take one example. Um, uh, but, but likewise, we, uh, we're, we're, we're equally concerned about what's happening in North Africa, in the, in the Sahel, and Mali, places like that, because there isn't just a, a, a threat to international peace and security in those situations. There are very serious humanitarian issues that are arising and have to be addressed in some way. Ambassador McClay also briefly touched upon the recent admittance of Palestine as a UN non-voting member. I asked him to elaborate on New Zealand's decisions to vote in favour of such a resolution when other countries, including the United States, had voted against it. Could you go into a little bit more detail about New Zealand's decision to, give, uh, to vote to give Palestine observer status at the UN? Yeah. We have, for a long time, had a position that really is very similar to that of the United States. And, and what it first of all says is that we want to see what's known as the two-state solution. Two states living side by side behind secure borders, defined borders, in, in, a, in, uh, in peace and security. And we uh, want to see that resolved and agreed by negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Now, I've got to say to you, that's almost a mantra, because everybody says it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we say it all the time. Uh, the resolution that was drafted uh, did, did called for two things, in addition to the conferring this non-member state status. It, it called for two things, and it did so in moderate language, which is quite unlike many of the earlier resolutions, which usually had some pretty anti-Zionist or anti-Israeli, uh, or in some cases anti-Jewish sentiments, and we, we always refused to support any such resolution. But this was written in very moderate language, and it called for two things. It called for uh, the execution of the two-state solution and for the resumption of negotiations. So if you took the text alone, it was a no-brainer uh, for us. But we always said there were two things we would look at. We'd look at the text and we would look at the context. Mm -hmm. And the context at that particular time was the, the uh, action that uh, Israel was taking against Gaza, which I've got to say to you was very understandable. Uh, rockets being fired out of Gaza on a regular basis into Israel were going to invite some retaliation. And uh, we, we absolutely uh, not only uh, respect Israel's right to and support Israel's right to exist, but also its right to resist when things happen. Um, but what was happening was that uh, in the process, uh, Hamas, which frankly most of the Western world regards with disfavor, was being enhanced in its status. 
um, and we saw the moderate Palestinian voices in, in um, Ramallah, um, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, sometimes known as Abu Mazen, and, um, and uh, Prime Minister Fayyad and others being, uh, their, their, their voice being diminished in the process, and we felt it was very important to give support to uh, what we might loosely describe as moderate, responsible Palestinian voices. So that was broadly the context in which we made our decision. Now others, as I say, um, other close friends of ours made, made different decisions, but, but our basic view was the text was very acceptable, and the context obliged us, we felt, to support uh, a moderate Palestinian resolution, which is what we did. New Zealand's ambassador to the UN will be speaking about the country's role in international affairs tomorrow night in Daniel's Room 343 at 7.30 p.m. For the Triangle, I'm Jake Langlois.
As we all know, Hoffman Forest is up for sale and there's been a bunch of controversy about it. The potential buyers of the forest are interested in renovating the land for homes and military training grounds. Through negotiations of sale, a prospectus was leaked. A prospectus is a preliminary printed statement that describes an enterprise and that is distributed to prospective buyers, investors, or participants. NC State claims to have no knowledge of this prospectus and states that they only meant for the land to be preserved. However, there are many economic and agricultural benefits to developing the land. The soil in Hoffman Forest is very rich and nutritional for planting grain. There's also the possibility of rock quarrying and mining to sell the rich soil and then turning these holes into ponds and lakes to serve as amenities for the development. The military can also use this land for many things like building an airstrip, tactical landing zones, and training sites. But they only intend to use some of the land for a 50-year deal. The military base Camp Lejeune is a big economic factor in Onslow County and the areas around it. So expanding Camp Lejeune will provide economic benefit to the surrounding towns and counties. There's been a lot of miscommunication amongst the buyers and NC State, making the idea of Hoffman Forest selling a very shady subject. NC State students and professors believe that selling the forest will be disastrous and the environmental impacts will be irreversible. But despite the opposition, the Board of Trustees for the Endowment Fund of NC State have agreed to terms of selling. The buyer confirmed to NC State in their agreement that the property will not be developed into large commercial and residential communities and that any changes to accommodate development will require a county public approval process. NC State agreed to the sale because they believe in investing the proceeds that they could yield a more consistent stream of money to the College of Natural Resources. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Michaela O'Connor. Well, I'm speaking to Christina Hammock, who is currently the NOAA Station Chief in American Samoa, she is a graduate of North Carolina State University, and she was also recently named a member of the 2013 NASA astronaut class. So, Christina, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you for having me. I want to start out by asking, because I know many of the people listening will have this as their first question. What was NC State like for you? What did you major in? What did you expect to do with your life? Did you ever suspect that it might lead you in this direction? Well... I actually never tried to put too many expectations on it, but it has always been my dream to be an astronaut. And when I went to NC State, um, I was able to double major in electrical engineering and physics, which was what I really wanted to do because it was a combination of some hands-on work as an engineer, but also the theory um, at doing the physics side. So. I really just wanted to have a little bit of both in my background and stay very general in terms of what I built up my skills in. So I really enjoyed my time at NC State. Um, both the College of Engineering and Physics was wonderful for me. I did some internships and did some scholarships through the, both colleges. So it was a great time. You said you you'd always wanted to be an astronaut, and I'm sure there's you know quite a few people who could who could also say that, but it never came to fruition. Was there a time in college when you thought, well, maybe this could actually work out, or was it still always just a dream of yours that came closer later on? Well, I would say that I sort of, I did actively pursue my interest in the space program in college, um, but again, I 
I sort of firmly believed that in order to be worthy of being an astronaut, it had to be something that you achieved based on following your own dreams, not by doing the things that sort of fill all the astronaut checkboxes. So I just had a passion for the space program, and so I did an internship at NASA while I was at State over the summer. I also did an internship um, in the astrophysics department at State, and I pursued a scholarship called the Astronaut Scholarship that's given by former astronauts. So I was definitely working towards my, or working in the field that I loved, which is space. But again, I wasn't necessarily eyes on the prize of being an astronaut. That was just something I felt that later in my career, if I had built up the skills to be able to contribute to it, I would pursue. After graduating state, you, you majored in electrical engineering and physics, you said, and you were in the graduate program as well? Yep. I just took advantage of the great program that um, the ECE department had to do a five-year master's. And so I just, in five years, I got those three degrees, the two bachelors in uh, physics and electrical engineering, and then a master's in electrical engineering. Did you begin working for NOAA directly after that, or did you have an interim job, or how did you become station chief in America at Samoa? I've had many, many interim jobs. That's part of the old uh, following your dreams thing. Um, My first job was at NASA as a space science instrument engineer, electrical engineer, and then I pursued my other dream of going to work in Antarctica. So (laughs) my career sort of had two tracks. I've worked um, at two different places full-time as an electrical engineer developing science instruments for space um, NASA's space science missions. One of them is on its way to Jupiter right now, and I've got three different missions that I've worked on um, Earth orbiting right now. Um, so that was in itself a dream come true. And then in between that work, I've worked in remote field regions like in Antarctica and, and Greenland and northern Alaska. And then that same work brought me to a remote station in American Samoa, which is very nice and tropical compared to the South Pole. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, did you specifically request to be stationed in somewhere warm <laughs> after working in Antarctica and in Greenland? <laughs> I, I actually did. I, I love the idea of, of going to Antarctica, um, but after doing it for many years and going back many times, it, it also sounded pretty good to live in a tropical island. <laughs> Were you specifically recruited based on your uh, previous work you had done there or did you just apply like everyone else? I remember hearing about it a couple years ago that they were just taking applications for the new class. Did you just enter that way? Yep, absolutely. I just entered like um, any, all the other 6,300 people that put their resumes on USA Jobs. Uh, How soon did you, did you receive an answer back? It was a year and a half process with um, three different stages. The first stage was we, um, the, they whittled it down to a group that was asked to get a pilot physical and whose references were sent out forms. And then from there, it was whittled down to a group of 120. And we all, the 120 of us over the course of several weeks, groups of 10 went into Houston at Johnson Space Center for a three-day interview. And then the third and final stage was a seven-day interview. And at that point, it was whittled down to only 50 people. And um, that interview was very intense, a lot of medical testing and many other skills tests and um, interviews and group, group work as well. And then um, a few months after that, they made the calls and I got my call on June 6th. Was it like the right stuff? Is it what everyone expects when they see, you know, astronaut <laughs> trials or was it, was it what you expected? I, I would say that it was 
I didn't have many expectations except that I knew there would be a lot of medical testing. And in terms of the whole right stuff thing, I would say that it catered more to what they've kind of termed the new right stuff, which is not necessarily the test pilot aspect of the Apollo missions right stuff, but people who have a really diverse background of skills and also have a demonstrated ability to work well with others and especially in small places on small teams and people who have experience with research, people who are adaptable, who can roll with the punches and things like that. So there was a lot of skills testing involving those types of right stuff things. Um, and then of course, tons of medical testing and I have seen the right stuff and even some of the tests that they had on there that seemed um, pretty harsh, we did actually do. So it, it was pretty intense, but it was obviously worth it and it was a good challenge. Were there cuts along the way? Were, was there a much larger number of people in the beginning or did they have a small number and they knew, well, just based on references, we can probably shape these people? They, yeah, it was whittled down to the, the very first cut, it actually, they whittled way back. I believe the first cut with the references and the pilot's physical was already down to 400 people. And then the first interview, three-day interview, was 120 people. And the seven-day interview was 50 people. They just announced the class, like, last week, right? But uh, how, did you have to keep it secret? Did you, were you able to tell people? Or they said, well, just keep it on the down low until NASA says it officially. You're exactly right. We knew um, we were not allowed to tell people except for our supervisors and, you know, maybe one other person. So that was a very long 10 days, but it was also a, a needed 10 days to really adjust to the idea. And I'm still not adjusted to it. And it's still very unbelievable. <laughs> but. Well, what's next? Um, are you still working in Samoa, right? Yep. I'm actually in Samoa right now. And I'm finishing up my last week of work, and then I'm going to be heading back to the mainland soon. And then we report to Johnson Space Center in Houston on August 12th. Do you know how much training you'll go through or what the next couple months will look like or when when you could even expect yep. your first mission? Well, the, how the timeline works is we train for two years doing the basic training that would then, if we pass, we would become eligible to receive an assignment. And then it can probably be several years until we received a mission assignment. And then there's more years of training between receiving an assignment and actually going to that mission. So the possibility of going into space is still many, many years off, and it's still just a possibility. And you all would be the first class of astronauts who would not uh, train with or have any opportunity to use the space shuttle. That's correct. Actually, the last class, the 2009 class, also... Um, Probably they may have done some initial training with shuttle. I don't know for sure, but the shuttle was retired before any of them became flight eligible. Okay. So we're the second post shuttle class, I would say. I think it does go back to the fact that there's, um, you know, because we just are sending mainly people to work on experiments in the International Space Station at this point, you know, pilots and commanders aren't at this point. Um, able to actually fly a U.S. Um, spacecraft. But the U.S. is working on our next generation of spacecraft, so the, uh, that opportunity will come again in the future. And I know this is very far in the future, but they're saying that, that this class of astronauts will be the first one who sort of prepare for the asteroid landing and yep. 
if maybe we go to Mars sometime in the 2030s or later. Can you, can you tell us anything about that, or is it just really all speculation at the point? I think that at this point, I know as much as you do. <laughs> but I can tell you, if someone assigned me to a, an asteroid mission, I would gladly do it. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, I just want to thank you so much for speaking to us. I know all of us at NC State only wish you the best of luck, and we're all very proud that you've made this achievement. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and um, I have a lot of huge debt of gratitude to all my professors and advisors at NC State. Everyone was always very encouraging. And um, I, there's no way that anything like this would have been possible without um, the support and encouragement of everyone throughout my time at State. So thank you. That was Christina Hammock, alumna of North Carolina State University, NOAA Station Chief in American Samoa, and a member of the newly named 2013 class of NASA astronauts. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Andrew Eichen. WKNC recently launched a unique video series called The Lounge. Walt Lilly, our production manager, sat down with me to talk a bit about what this new program is all about. About this summer, John Kowalczyk, who was program director at the time over the summer, uh, approached me and he sort of had this dream of making a little video series with KNC where we have artists come in and just we just point cameras at them and let them play the music they want to play. And he wasn't really sure how to go about doing it. So we kind of goofed around for a little while and tested out some ideas, spent a few months shooting pilots and having our friends come in and help us out, like Mark Cusio from Ghost Blonde, let us use him as a guinea pig, which we're very appreciative of that, and we learned a lot from that. But we've just now actually gotten rolling on it, and we just released, I guess, the second episode, you'd call it, of the songs Jackson Scott came in and performed. The series gets its name because the filming location is our own radio station lounge. This presents advantages as well as disadvantages. We want it to feel very... I hate to use the word intimate, but we're trying to make it very intimate. So it's a really small room, which is something, one of our obstacles we're trying to get over because thus far we've just had Daniel Bachman and Jackson Scott. They both were just doing solo sets with guitars. But in the future, we kind of want to see if we can squeeze two or three people in there and just have some semblance of a full band performance in that kind of environment, which I think will be really cool. And that's something we're trying out pretty soon. As far as producing the segments, it's become a lot easier over time. Preparation is a little bit difficult aligning everyone's schedules because uh, we've had John Mitchell and Kevin Sweeney run sound for us and they do a great job setting all it up and then editing it, making it sound really pretty. And uh, editing is was very difficult at first because we it took us a while to figure out how we were going to stylize it and how we wanted everything to look. John and I struggled with that a lot at the beginning, but now we've got it down to a science. We've figured out how we want every episode to look. We figured out the format. So now pretty much whenever we filmed a fresh session, I just got to take it in, sync the audio, drop my titles, scan them in, pretty it up, and then it's pretty much good to go. Looking towards the future, the lounge will be a consistent part of WKNC's multimedia content. We have a few in the pipeline right now. So one every two to three weeks, if not sooner, that's probably like the lowest frequency it'll be. We've got one coming up I'm pretty excited about, but I don't want to spoil it. I want to leave it a surprise. Just, just stay tuned for that. To keep up with new episodes, subscribe to the YouTube page. That's youtube.com slash the WKNC 881. 
You can like the Facebook page, WKNC's The Lounge, and keep an eye on the WKNC Twitter, that's at WKNC881, where teases of upcoming releases will be posted over the next few weeks. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. Here's what's going on at NC State. This week at NC State, we've got final exams, so be sure to hit the books and study hard, Wolfpack. Wednesday at the North Carolina Museum of History, former NCSU professor of design Dennis Wood presents History a la carte, Everything Sings. Beverages will be provided as Dr. Wood discusses his atlas of the Boylan Heights neighborhood here in Raleigh, as well as his inspiration behind the maps. The event begins at 12 noon. Wednesday evening at 7.30, Quail Ridge Books and Music prevents African-American music trails of Eastern North Carolina. This book highlights the traditions and performers across the region and guides readers to venues, events, and restaurants along the way. Authors and performers will be present to make for an entertaining night. Thursday is the next in the Read Smart book discussion at the Cameron Village Regional Library. Associate Professor of Psychology Dr. Craig Brookins will moderate a discussion about the book Hidden Biases of Good People. The event will take place from 7 to 8 p.m. Thursday is also the first day of the Governor's Mansion Holiday Open House, where guests are welcome to take a tour of the North Carolina Executive Mansion in its holiday decor. Local groups will perform holiday music in the ballroom. Reservations are not necessary, and the open house lasts through Sunday. Thursday evening is the State Capitol Christmas Tree Lighting and Holiday Festival from 5 to 7.30 p.m. Musical performances will kick off the festivities before the Governor and First Lady light the State Christmas Tree on the South Plaza. Afterwards, guests are invited inside the Capitol for an open house to enjoy the decorations. Friday night at 6 p.m., the Videri Chocolate Factory will host a story night. Kids and parents are invited to come in their pajamas and enjoy hot chocolate and a reading of the Polar Express. Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. is family night at Logan's Trading Company. Along with a visit from Santa, kids will enjoy holiday crafts, treats, story time with elves, and other activities. Also Saturday night, the NC State men's basketball team will take on Detroit at Reynolds Coliseum. Be sure to come out and support the pack. Later that evening, the Campus Cinema will be playing National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation for free at 10 p.m. Sunday at the Museum of History, the film Andrei Rublev will be showing. Based on the life of Russian medieval painter and icon Andrei Rublev, the film begins at 1 p.m. and will be followed with a discussion. For more information on these events and more, go to ncsu.edu calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage.